0: Good morning. This is <clears throat> uh, about John, Don- John O'Donoghue, who wrote Anum Cara*. We easily forget the beauty and mystery of the world we are in, rain falling outside the window, the greenness of a leaf, a laugh with a friend, hearing much-loved music. For people who lead quiet lives, such things are rightly appreciated. But for most of us, these moments fall into the shadows of the various battles we are fighting to succeed, to be recognized, to be spiritually advanced. John O'Donohue's meditation on living the soulful life, Anam cara, spiritual wisdom from the Celtic world, has been popular around the globe, possibly because it goes against everything we might get taught at a motivational seminar. Instead, it teaches us to get off the merry-go-round of success and actually live. Though it is never really clear what Celtic wisdom actually consists of, the reader takes it to involve whimsy, spontaneity, attunement with nature, and appreciating the mysteries of our souls. We unknowingly kill off our own potential for joy, O'Donoghue says, by trying to hammer our lives into predetermined shape with plans or programs. Instead of paying attention to our senses and to the seasonal rhythm of our lives, we end up with a somewhat mechanical existence. And this is from Annam Kara. Fashioned from the earth, we are souls in clay form. We need to remain in rhythm with our inner clay voice and longing. Yet this voice is no longer audible in the modern world. We are not even aware of our loss. Consequently, the pain of our spiritual exile is more intense in being largely unintelligible. Your body knows you very intimately. It is aware of your whole spirit and soul life. Far sooner than your mind, your body knows how privileged it is to be here. And our speaker for today is the visionary leader of the vibrant and abundant Center for Spiritual Living Edmonton, our spiritual director. Please help me in joining. Please join me in welcoming Reverend Patrick Cameron. I it to be cleaned anyway. Don't worry about it.
1: That's okay. But if you if I start smoking and somebody knocked the knocked the thing out of my hand, okay, come here. You. I'm not trying to embarrass you. You did great. It's just water. We wouldn't even cry over it if it was milk. you know what this works pretty good sticks right there (laughs) you know what the innovator that's a little blurry now but that's okay i kind of know what i'll just read diane and michael's introduction again if i run out of stuff to do good morning welcome the power came back on yeah it's you know we can do it with or without power but uh man this isn't going to work at all but uh it's nicer with power Thanks. So. so here we are, once again. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Got everybody to move up this morning. Actually, the power didn't go out. We just wanted you all to move up. So. All right. So we're going to sing a song and uh, say a prayer. If you'd like to stand with me while we do all that, you're welcome. If not, please stay seated. It's optional. So I invite you to know with me one life, one power, one activity and I claim that life as my own. That life is my life. Speaking these words in the I am for each person here I invite my words to be your words. And so what I know in this is that I am open and receptive. I look at my foundational core beliefs and I examine all of them daily. And that which no longer serves me I with great love put it down. And I open myself up to the divine guidance and the awareness the insight, the resources, the people, the opportunities that I bring into my life, people that just absolutely resonate with me in, in the most beautiful symphony, in the most harmonic way possible. And so that together, we may live the most precious and beautiful and powerful and creative lives possible. For we are here to live life and live life well. And for this, I give thanks. I give thanks for the opportunity to choose each day how I shall show up. I give thanks this day for the blessings that have been The blessings that are here now and the blessings that have yet to show up. But I know that I am planting the most potent and powerful seeds of possibility right here and right now. For I am a magnet for great good, great love, great joy, great abundance in every area of life. And so I just give thanks this day. As a reminder, I'm grateful for the beautiful music this day, for the artistry that we are immersed in, for the beauty of nature, for the beauty of of one another, the ability to see and hear and taste, and touch. It's it's such a gift. And So I just give thanks for all this and more. With that said, I know the right and perfect impress upon this infinite law has had its way by means of me, by means of you. For this I give thanks, and I release these words, knowing in gratitude it is already done in the mind of the one. And together we say, and so it is. Please be seated. Thank you, Brown. Beautiful good stuff. I think I'll grab both of them and let them dry out a little bit while I'm talking. Yes, yeah, so here we are. We've been uh, using um, Daniel Pink's book, A Whole New Mind. We have him in the bookstore. Great book. Wonderful book. Love this guy. It's just uh, why right-brainers will rule the future. There's, there's hope for the right-brainers now, finally. Yay! Exactly. But wonderful stuff. You know, uh, uh, the reading this morning was from John O'Donohue. And if you've been around me a bit, you know that John O'Donohue is one of my favorite authors. Uh, his book, Annam Carr, is one of my favorite books. I, t- I Use that quote. There's a, several quotes from that book that I absolutely love. And O'Donohue said this about uh, his experience. He was an Irishman. He was raised Catholic. So I, I probably have an affinity with him because that was my early, that was my early training as well. And uh, it was great training. It was really great training because it moved me along. I, I think I, I, I was so immersed in it and, and looked at it so closely for so many years. It really helped give me some insight into what I felt was incongruent and some of the questions that I, I, I felt I needed to answer. And so I'm very grateful for that. In fact, I, you know, I just uh, uh, my, my family, as you know, I have ten brothers and sisters, and they're all very devout Catholic, my mother, and, and wonderful tradition, great stuff. But O'Donohue said this, he said, the Celtic tr- uh, culture is about the circular m- movement of life and rhythm with the seasons. So our lives are really not linear. It's more of a circle. That's what I love about the labyrinth. The Celts were the, one of the first people to walk the labyrinth. The Greeks had the first known labyrinth on the planet was uh, the Seven Circuit Labyrinth, which is based on the orbit of the planet Mercury. And that's found in the Isle of Crete, about 70, a f- hmm, long time ago. I was gonna, I, I'll get it wrong, but... About four or 5,000 years ago, I think, is what it was. And so he said, This ancient awareness is at odds with our modern linear idea of constant progress. The Celtic mind is not systematic or dualistic. In Celtic wisdom, there is no great distinction between spirit and matter, or time and eternity. We live in physical and material realms at once, and we are bo- therefore born an earthly being and a spiritual one, a soul in a clay form. And I think that's true. I think that's what, what Dr. Ernest Holmes talks about. I think that that's what all the great mystics, all the great avatars that have come down through the ages have told us. And we know that. And we're practical mystics. We're, at, we're born at a time like never before. There's so much change going on, shift and change. And it's scary for people. A lot of people don't like change. Have you noticed that? <clears throat> Do you like change in your life? Sometimes. Sometimes. Because sometimes change is painful. You know, sometimes you go to work thinking you still got a job. You know, sometimes you get up. I was just talking to a young lady this morning, and she had a traffic accident yesterday. Was it yesterday? Monday. But anyway, lost her car. There's change, huge change. But the point being is, I think that when we understand and we're grounded in, in what we know to be true about ourselves, then we understand all of it, despite what it looks like, despite what it feels like is, is, is necessary for us in this next moment, for whatever the knowing is. And so we have great compassion. I mean, I have great compassion for you know, losing your transportation and all those sudden things that happen in life. doesn't mean we don't have compassion and caring and, and want to help one another. But at the, the, the deepest of levels, there, there are no accidents. And yet, many times it looks so random. Dr. Holmes said when you start to apply these principles in your life, you move yourself out of that, that uh, law of probability into the law of, of cause and effect. We're planting seeds. And, and as we refine our thinking, that, that's, our lives reflect that. Very simple, really easy to talk about, let me tell you. Another challenge to live it. Have you had any challenges living this philosophy? Am I the only one? So Daniel Pink in this this chapter that I want to touch on a little bit and and inspire a little bit of the the talk. Today's lesson is called, How High is High? He talks about high touch, high concept. And I wanted to share a little bit with you of what those two mean. And I think I can read it better than probably uh, do it off the top of my head. High concept involves the ability to create artistic and emotional beauty, to detect patterns and opportunities, to craft a satisfying narrative, and to combine seemingly unrelated ideas into a novel intention. High touch involves the ability to empathize, to understand the subtleties of human interaction, to find joy in oneself and to elicit it in others, and to stretch beyond the the quadrant in pursuit of purpose and meaning. So what's happening, and all that is right-brained, so we've, we've moved from the agricultural age, farmers, to the industrial age, which is factory workers, to now the knowledge workers, and we know we see that. We see that with the Internet. Da, da, uh, Thomas Friedman's book, The World is Flat, great book on that, how a number of years ago the whole world got wired up for the Internet, high-speed Internet. They laid cable, 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 and then that whole industry collapsed, kind of like what's happened with the financial markets now. It's a great book, though. In fact, uh, uh, Friedman is on the back here uh, endorsing this book. This is my favorite business book by Thomas Friedman. But it's interesting to watch the evolution of consciousness. It's all the evolution of consciousness. And so what it's, it's now the abundance that we currently have on the planet has allowed us to move more collectively into transcendence. I believe that's why we're here. I believe that we have created all these things in our lives so that we can pour more energy into this opportunity to, to live and experience transcendence. And that transcendence, I believe, is found... I was reading a little quotation from Dr. Uh, Thomas Persing, who wrote The Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And Persing said that Spirituality and philosophy are just maps to the truth. So even the science of mind, our teaching, it's a map to the truth, but it's not the truth. It's just the map. It's a pathway that if we follow, and we're going to have our own experiences with it. You will have your own experiences with this philosophy in your own unique way. It's just the way it's set up. You know, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no uh, systematic outcome intended with this because it can't be that way. Dr. Holmes used to say that to be created and to be bound in your creation... God would never do that. The infinite, the design of the universe. And so, to be alive at this point in time and to watch the shifts and changes that are going on on the planet, it's an amazing thing. But the right brain is, is necessary now because we're moving out of this idea it's all linear, it's all this uh, knowledge workers, it's about programming the computer. It's then taking that and seeing the patterns in it and, and, and uh, synthesizing it and incorporating it all. And the narrative is really important, story is really important, song. There's 30% more people making their living as songwriters in 1970 than there were, uh, I don't know how many years prior to that, but statistically, and 50% more writers making their living in 1970. So I don't even know what the statistics are now. But it's our longing for meaningful narrative in our lives. Story is so important. It's just, a, it, 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 and we remember that. If I, if I stand up here and read the Science of Mind textbook, I know that if I read from anything too long, I'll lose you. It's just the way it works. I, you know I, I, I didn't come to have the phone book read to me. And I know you didn't either, but the narrative has to be important. There's a, there's a wonderful book, one of my favorite books by Marcus Buckingham, called The One Thing That You Must Know. And so in that book, there's not one thing you must know, but basically it does boil down to one thing, and, and they did some studies in it. And what they found with it is that they talked to children, and they had talked to children in a disadvantaged neighborhood, poor, 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 with very little opportunity, very easy to... to. So if we look at the status quo in that of that environment, how they're nurtured, how they're... they're Uh, encouraged the reality of the situation um, is that they probably don't have a a very bright future so they talked to these kids and what they found was that the ones that assessed their environment based on the current conditions that you know what do you think you'll ever go to college or university most of the kids say no but there were a few of those children that said yes I'm going to go I'm going to go to university I'm going to go to college and they studied and they watched them over the years and they found out that every one of them that said they were going to go to college went to college and every one of them that said they would never be able to go to college didn't go to college. Isn't it interesting? Same environment, same condition, same, same idea, but, but some had a different idea. Some told themselves a different story about that. It's fascinating. And, I mean, there, there is metaphysics being applied in a practical way. We look at it. It's the story we, we create for ourselves. Did, you, did anybody wake up from the hail last night? Anybody? Did you have hail in your neighborhood? I was, Laura and I were laying in bed, and I said, what is that? So I thought Davis had bought some new, he's got, a, he, my son Davis has a fog machine, and he's got all this stuff, and every once in a while, he turns something on, I'm like, what is he doing now? And then I realized, and Laura says, it's hell, and I said, it's hell? <laughs> so we don't believe in hell, honey, we don't teach that. She so ran to the window, and we looked out, and I was like, wow, what's this it was like a, a movie. I thought, at, at first, I thought there was a whole bunch of chipmunks running around on the, the roof. I said at the early sort a covey of chipmunks. What is a uh, what is a whole herd of chipmunks? Anybody? Is there a name for it? A what? Okay, you can't. Uh, we can't say that publicly. Whatever you just said. And we won't. But it is interesting. It's interesting to watch the evolution of consciousness. And and that is what we're we're witnessing. As we move from the agricultural to the industrial to the information, now we're moving to the conceptual this conceptual age, where all of a sudden it is as important, beauty and the aesthetic is as important as the function. And we see that. We see that with the iPod. The iPod is an amazing piece of technology. But it has to be convenient, there's got to be a function, there's got to be an aesthetic to it, it's got to have all these different qualities to it. And did you know that the the Mormon church that's in this book, the Mormon church has 400 um, graphic and artistic people involved with their organization helping market what they do. Because they realize the aesthetic and the pictures and the visual, this branding that we're going through with some of the pictures and the, the common uh, logo and all these things is a reflection of that. We realize that, you know, the, the way we present ourselves in the world to people is so, so important. We used to, when people came in, we used to have, there was a tradition here, we used to stand up and we used to, we would do a shortened version of the Declaration of Principles. And they're wonderful. I love the Declaration of Principles, what we believe. We believe God is ever-present and in and through and as, and those of us that choose to use this principle will find great results in our life. I am mean, I'm paraphrasing the whole thing, but there's a whole list of them, and we would do five or six of them. And I had a young man come to me one day, and he said, you know, I bring friends here. This guy was like 18, 19. He'd been in one of my Science of Mind class. I bring my friends here. And he says, I'm in the door, and within 10 minutes, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of forced by the collective agreement to stand up and read something that I'm not sure whether I'm ready to read it out loud or not. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Yeah, I guess, you know, it would be like bringing people into your house for tea or coffee and saying, and this is now we're going to stand up and we're going we're to say my prayer, or whatever it is. And I thought, you know, it's probably not very welcoming. And so I realized that, you know, when, you, when you, you dive into the classes, you get an opportunity. You get immersed in it, but you do that voluntarily. And you expose yourself to the ideas, and most people will take them and use them in a, in a powerful way. But for some... So I, I'm not into forced intimacy. I don't think that... that, that I think that you let people have their own experience. Let them come in, check it out. And this whole idea of, um, you know, I've been, we were in Granada Hills a few uh, weeks ago. And it's a much smaller environment. We did the same thing in, in uh, Fillmore, but, but we used to uh, uh, shake hands, greet one another. But once again, a lot of people told me, I don't, you know, I just, I'm i just here. And I realized, you know what, let people have their own experience. Let's let that people have their own experience. They want to shake hands with one another, give one another a hug, you know, great. But to require it of people, I just think it's, I just think it's, it doesn't work for me. and so. But I look at that, and it's, that's part of how you show up in the world, you know, how we present ourselves, The stage. That we've spent thousands of dollars on rebuilding. You've seen the metamorphosis of this, this backdrop and this stage over the years and our sound equipment and how we do things. But all of that is, is intentional and it's thought out, and I think it's important. It's important how we present ourselves to the world and show up with some great clarity. So all those little things, you know, how you do one thing is how you do everything. God shows up in the details, all that stuff. And so with this, we're looking at the evolution of consciousness. If you weren't here last week, there were three questions that you should ask. If you're involved in something right now in your life, can someone overseas do your job cheaper? Is there some way that you can outsource what you do overseas cheaper? There is. You're probably doing the wrong thing. Number two, can a computer do it faster? There's all kinds of things that have changed. We see it over and over and over again. A lot of the things that are done legally in accounting, and we've got someone doing uh, transcribing. Of our talks, and uh, I think it's done in India. I think they just ship the stuff over there uh, electronically, and it's it's uh, transcribed in India. It's amazing. It's, it's uh, incredibly inexpensive. Number three is what I'm offering in demand in the age of abundance, or what are you doing? You know, is it, does it have demand? Because good business is whatever is in demand is supply. Find out what's wanted and need it, and fill the need. That's good business. And so, if you're manufacturing wheelbarrows. Probably can't make enough wheelbarrows fast enough to make a living. You know, it's like a buddy of mine. We had a cabinet shop. He had a cabinet shop next to my cabinet shop when I lived in L.A. And I said, you know, we'd 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 commiserate every so often. And I went over one day, and he said, "Oh man," he said, "I'm I'm doing three kitchens, and I'm I'm losing about five thousand dollars on each kitchen." But he looked at me, and he says, "But he said, I I think if I could sell a few more, I'll make it up for in volume. You know, just keep losing five thousand dollars a kitchen over and over again, doesn't work." But you realize, even in that industry I've shared with you a bit, I realize the end is in sight here. I'm not going to spend a million dollars on equipment to get automated to do this. It wasn't my passion. I could do it. I could build anything. But you weren't going to get any more of my energy. I wasn't going there. The other thing that it uh, talks about in the book is that the, um, the, the narrative, how important that is. They're taking medical students now. And they're, they're telling them that a big portion of how they do diagnosis is in the narrative. It's listening to people, listening to their story. And, and, and because a lot of the, the diagnosis can come from the story and the lifestyle and spending time with them. My son, Max, is going to start medical school in another month at the U of A. And I saw, Laura and I saw a program a few years ago that said that, that the doctors that spend five more minutes with the patients in just conversation and, and connecting with them, they, the rate of, of litigation and them being sued is like almost non-existent. Five more minutes. I said, Max, make sure you spend plenty of time with everybody, you know? <laughs> take your time but it just five more minutes makes a huge difference because we want to be seen and we want to be heard i was at the doctor's office this week and i was so excited about what he was telling me because i was because uh, i knew all the answers and he kept saying just be quiet i got more to t- i'm not done okay <sighs> oh you mean this no, just be quiet i'm not done oh, okay so i thought i knew i didn't know but he was very patient with me i like that guy they're teaching spirituality, and in, in, uh, they're incorporating it into the practice of how they teach medical students. UCLA now has a program, second-year medical students spend a night or two in the hospital, and it creates empathy for what patients go through. You know, they wouldn't have done that 50 years ago. What does a doctor need to know that? But all of a sudden, they're realizing that there's got to be this empathy that goes on, this conversation. As I mentioned, the MFAs, the Master of Fine Arts, is one of the hottest tickets right now. It's One of the hottest, one of the hottest degrees that you can have, the Master of Fine Arts, because all of it, the design is so important. Design is so very important for all of it. As we live in this age of abundance, what is the design? What is the function and the form, and what's the narrative around it? And, and all of these things. In fact, over the next few weeks, we're going to get into that at the um, um, design, story, sympathy, empathy, play, and meaning. Those are the six areas that uh, Daniel Pink, and we'll start talking about that a little bit design, story, symphony, empathy, play, and meaning very interesting. He says that the new, the new money is meaning. The cultural creatives insist on seeing the big picture. That's what most of us are here. About a quarter of the population are cultural creatives. And, and so they insist on seeing the big picture. They're, they're good at synthesizing, pulling things together, and incorporating things and seeing how things work. They see women's ways of knowing as valid. Imagine that. I was talking to my brother yesterday. He's an attorney in Minneapolis. And he's very conservative. He's also a metaphysician, but he wants nothing to do with God. It's very interesting, because he loves all the books, but he doesn't want anything that has to do with God. I think he came through, you know, we all came through in waves, different consciousness, you know, 11 of us, and in whatever wave he hit, he just had the, he, the, G, the G word always makes him kind of, <laughs> so he doesn't want the G word at all. But he b- believes very much in, in, uh, in metaphysics, and uh, he would struggle with this idea, because he's it's a, it's a, a very masculine approach to to the world, and we were talking yesterday about that. And I think we cut ourselves off from such great possibility when we're not listening and we're not present, we're not feeling not only the things we're feeling, but for others as well. So they see, see women's way of knowing as valid, feeling empathy and sympathy for others, taking the viewpoint of one who speaks, seeing personal experience and first-person stories as important ways of learning, and embracing ethic of caring. Baby boomers are entering the conceptual age with an eye on their own chronological age. They recognize that they now have more of their lives behind them than ahead of them, and such indisputable arithmetic can concentrate the mind. After decades of pursuing riches, wealth seems less alluring. For them and for many others, this new era, meaning is the new money. So it has to have meaning. Meaning otherwise, it's just empty. If we don't have the meaning connected with it. And, and the money's a great thing. It's a tool. It's a, it, you know, money is got in action. You know, there's little booklets that, that you'll see in our bookstore occasionally. You know, it's all great. This is, that's how we exchange things now. We don't have, we don't swap chickens for something else. Just don't do that anymore. We carry these, this paper in our pocket. But it has to have meaning. Well, and I think that when we come here together, you don't, you don't come here because you have to. If this isn't meaningful for you, if the, if the music doesn't lift you up and the message isn't pertinent and, and something of value, you're not going to show up. I can't condemn you to hell. I can't guilt you into showing up. And, I know, and that's the way it should be. I mean, it's one of the things that appealed to me about the, this teaching because I was in and out the door many, many times. And it was nice because they'd let me go. And then they'd let me come back in. And no one ever tried to shame me or blame me. Well, Dennis did once in a while. Everyone says, where have you been? (laughs) Golfing. (laughs) Why, were you looking for me? (laughs) So how much, so he talks about IQ in here, how we measure IQ. And you know, anybody here got a really, really high IQ besides me? (laughs) How much do you think, percentage-wise, how much do you think IQ influences success? Huge. Now, you can't participate. Somebody said huge? Zip. Is that a zero? Okay, we had zero. Do I get get another bid? (laughs) Zero. Anyway, so you don't want to play. 100 percent? 50 percent? You think it's 50 percent? 47. 47. There we go. 47 percent. Thank you. I got a 47 (laughs) percent. Then sold. All right, sold. Canadian. Anyway, it it influences about four to ten percent. Four to ten percent. So, what do we measure IQ for? What's it got to do with success? I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's an arbitrary scale. It's something to know. But it has very little to do with one's future success or lack thereof. The richest guy in my hometown could not write his own name. He was an excavator. He could drive a bulldozer like nobody you ever saw. And he owned about 50 trucks by the time he retired. Couldn't sign his name. I, who knows what his IQ level was? I mean, th- just because he couldn't sign his name doesn't mean he wasn't bright because he was very bright. But, you know, I mean, this whole idea. What's more important than IQ is is the qualities of imagination, joyfulness, and social dexterity. Social dexterity is really important. I'll give you an example of social dexterity. Last week, I'm standing, two weeks ago, I'm standing in the reception line. And everybody's pretty much left. And and, uh, every once in a while I forget, because if I stand there long enough, I know people want to do business with me they got something they want to sell here because there's all these, this is a captive audience. And, and if we all get on the Amway train here, we'll all be rich in six months. And we're not doing it. In fact, uh, where's Sue? Sue's not here today. But Sue handles all that. If you have a business proposition, I don't handle any of that. If you're sending me your business propositions, I'm not the guy. I'm the spiritual director. I'm not the business manager. We have a business breakfast and we have uh, Sue Stevens that helps me with that. So I forward your emails to her. I just don't get into the conversation. But the point being, so I'm standing in the back there and this little guy, everybody's, everybody's gone and this man comes up to me and he grabs my hand and he looks into my eye very sweetly and he says, I have to tell you something. I said, yeah. And everybody here is so close to you. I know that no one can say these things to you but I'm going to tell you. I said, okay. He said, you talk way too much. <laughs> just, it's just way, Way too much. And I. Now, I'm gonna tell you something. There's a time and place for everything. But when you talk about social dexterity, I am amazed. I am amazed the things that people say at times. I just am flabbergasted by the way people travel. I mean, if you don't know your audience, and it's not that you know, it's, it, I feel like some people just have Tourette's. They'll say whatever, whatever comes up. In fact, there was a guy next to me in Los Angeles when I had my cabinet shop. This is, the, this is a true story. He had Tourette's, and he cross-dressed. And he used to wear this blonde wig. And he had a shooting gallery in his shop. <laughs> Honest to God, he had a long thing. He had a uh, practice for shooting target practice. This is a true This is a sitcom, I'm telling you. And so I knew about the... And he was a sweet guy, and I had no problem. So I see him drive by, and he, sometimes he'd look like... He'd look like George, and sometimes he'd look like George as he'd drive by, because he had the blonde wig on and he had, wore this really bright red makeup when he was in his other outfit. And so this guy moves in next door, and he's in his uh, little Mexican guy that I knew very well, Efrain. And Efrain was a was a born again Christian. And so Efrain would come over and he'd say, "I got to go talk to this guy, because he'd go through these Tourette's uh, things, and he would just start swearing all over the place." And I say, Efren, it's a medical condition. He can't do anything about it. He goes, he's got to stop talking like that. I can hear him through the wall. And so I said, well, you know, Efren, I don't, I, don't think I don't think he can control that. I think it's a condition. Just, you know, I don't know what else to tell you. He says, it's just wrong. I got to go talk to him. So I see Efren one day. He says, I'm going to go over and see him. And he says, he marches over there. He, about four minutes later, I see him walking back, going in his shop. And I I'm, now I'm dying to know what happened. And he said, uh, I said, what happened? And he went over? he says, do you know that he has pistols in there and he shoots things? <laughs> I said, I've been trying to tell you, buddy. This is not a guy that you want to try and dial in so it fits your idea of what's right or what's wrong. But, but many times people will say stuff and I think, I would never say that to someone in a million years. I mean, it's a social dexterity. It's understanding. I mean, does this really need to be said? But there's, you know, there's a mindset that, you know, you just, you tell the truth, this radical honesty, you tell the truth all the time. I don't know. I don't know if that's a good strategy. But anyway, so the guy tells me, you talk too much. You just got to stop talking so much. And I just, I looked at him lovingly back, because he was looking at me lovingly, because he was the only one that would tell me this. And I said, thank you. Thanks for letting me know. He's not here today. (laughs) But that makes sense. I mean, if you go somewhere and you're not having a good time, why go back? My teacher used to say, I love it, and I, I think of it all the time when I see people in relationships. She always say, why be 10 seconds where you're not loved? Why hang out anywhere you're not loved? I mean, think about that. I mean, not just liked or tolerated. Are you tolerated at work? Are you tolerated by your boyfriend, girlfriend, partner? I mean, this, this nurturing and cherishing. Markets Buckingham's book, What Makes Happy Marriages? What, what Constitute a Happy Marriage? And they've studied it and studied a happy relationship over and over and over again. And they used to think it was, well, the other person would appreciate, deep appreciation of the qualities the other had. Oh, my wife is patient and compassionate and creative and she's a great cook and, and all those things. And then they found out, and that has nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. They found that what they would do is a study, and they found that, they would give people a list and say, list the qualities of your partner. And what they found with the really wonderful thriving relationships is the husband would write down a list of qualities, most of which the wife didn't even think she had. And the wife would do the same. And Marcus Buckingham calls it delusional appreciation. (laughs) I mean, and I think this is true of my wife, Laura. Laura. I do. I mean, I, I think when I, when I met her, she was seeing things in me. I'm like, are you sure? Seriously. And all of a sudden, I started believing her idea of me and, 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 and I, the story I made up about her. And it, that, and it continues. And they said, as, as, as the thriving relationships move along, that, that conversation and that, that uh, story that we make up about one another is so important. So it's, it's elevating our, our story, the, the fantasy we have about another. They talked about, they did another study in the book, and they said that people that are, they took a, a group of anxious and shy people and they put them in a controlled environment, and they took a group of people that were sort of the social butterflies, very socially adept, very comfortable in new situations, comfortable making friends, going out and saying hi, all this sort of thing. And what they found with with the the, the compelling thing about the two was that the, the ones that didn't believe, the honest assessment, I'm not good with people, I'm shy, I don't like going into parties, I don't like being in an environment that's uncomfortable or or unfamiliar they pretty much just stayed that way. That was their honest assessment of what it was. The ones that were better with people, their opinion of themselves, far, uh, their, the, what they thought of how they operated and, and interacted with people in their own mind far exceeded their skill level. So they had this Im- Im- imaginary idea of who and what they were based on the idea that they're really great with people, that everybody loves them, you know, whatever the stories were, which weren't necessarily accurate. But it helps support them in being successful in the direction that they want it to go. It's all pure metaphysics. It's all pure consciousness. It's, it's, an, it's whatever entrenched belief you have, whether it's one for success. So in other words, if you st- that's why affirmation works well. See, we start out, out doing affirmations because what we're, we're, we're heading towards isn't real in our lives right now. We've had a great discussion over the last few weeks about we don't get what we want, we get what we expect. We always get what we expect. We're getting what we expect right now. We're expecting things right now. we got some expectation when we leave this door. Go out that door today of what we'll get. It's just the way it works. It's our belief system. And so to shift the expectancy, we do it through affirmative prayer. We do it through looking at our entrenched beliefs and either carrying them forward to a a stronger degree or, or giving them up and shifting and changing them because we're always free to choose. And, and that's the great news we're not stuck we're not stuck Albert Einstein he used to say I think he lived in present moment most of the time because he was so so different but he used to say never think about the future because it'll be here soon enough I like that how can I stay present in this moment how can I show up this day what's going on what's alive within me this day that is this is this moving me closer to the way I want to show up in my life or am I hanging on to something? Because spiritual maturity requires us to look at what we're holding on to and see whether it's appropriate for us to hang on to it or not. And if it's not, as, as Victoria Castle talks about in The Trance of Scarcity, just put it down. Just put it gently put it down. Hmm. This idea that I'm a failure. Well, I think all of us have had experiences in life that didn't work out. Have we not? Ever had... Are you still... Did you marry your first girlfriend, boyfriend? Sweetheart? Alice is nodding her head. She did. Well, but you've had other opportunities to look at that. As Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But, but the point being is, I mean, this is how life moves us forward. Buck, Buckminster Fuller said that life is a series of trials and errors. And unfortunately, as, as children, we're disingenuous by this idea that we're not supposed to ever fail. But once we start to accept the idea that failure is part of the curriculum... So, wow, look at that. So Thomas Edison did when he was inventing the Life Bowl. 2,500 trials. Can you imagine a 2,499? But he just kept saying, you know, I'm closer. I'm one step closer. Winston Churchill, the definition of success is as moving from failure to failure without the, the loss of enthusiasm. I love that. It's just life, just doing what we're doing. And so there's an opportunity this day for you and I to call forth a bigger idea. That's what's being asked. That's why the evolution of consciousness is going on. That's why I'm bringing this book with me and saying, look, this is is what's happening. We're part of this. Consciousness is shifting. We're giving birth collectively and individually to the new idea, to the new ideas that will carry us forward for the next hundred years. It's always worked that way. It's never not worked. And so it's exciting. It's exciting to be alive. Dr. Ernest Holmes said, what's important is to be alive while you're alive. And so many of the other great teachers have, have said the same thing. Here we go, it's dried out. Dr. Holmes said this. There is a power that responds to our consciousness exactly the way we think. Just like a mirror. And if I say no matter what it looks like, I'm surrounded by love and by friendship. I am love. I am friendship. I give and I receive and I believe it. And this is true now. Because the only time is now. Affirm it now. And see, what you're doing with that is you're building that expectancy. The affirmations will build that expectancy. So when you walk out the door, it's like, man, I... I am just moving on this expectancy of great good. Something wonderful is waiting to happen, and here I am. Come on, baby. Ring around. Here we go. Something good. Something powerful. The next great idea, the next great insight, the next great awareness. It's exciting to be alive. The machinery and the mechanism of the universal law of cause and effect is set in motion to make it come true, and nothing can destroy it unless I do. Unless we give up, it's going to happen. It's inevitable, despite what you think. Oh, I've never been successful at that. I've never been loved. I've never had any money. You know George Foreman, the George Foreman cooker? His goal as a young man, became the heavyweight champ a couple times, to have $1,500 in his pocket one time. You know how much he's made off that George Foreman cooker thing? He made like $60 million. But he started out, his dream was, I'm going to have $1,500 in my pocket one day. That's why he started there. Then he moved into the cooker. I don't know how that came about. William Shatner, whatever he did with that Price.com thing, whatever. Someone told me on the way out they're remaking. Uh, they're going to make a T.J. Hooker movie. I was in an episode with him of T.J. Hooker. It's like great. I'm sure they'll be calling me any day now. Yeah, we got to get that cop number three from that 23rd episode back here, and he was fantastic. Nobody could stand in that blue uniform like he could. Yep. How many different ways are there to say up against the wall? I can tell you all of them. Is that... Well, my mom was proud because I wasn't a crook. I was always the cop. <laughs> there is nothing that can destroy it unless I do myself. Nothing can neutralize it. I know there are people who will say, well, you have to, be a, to, have, you have, to have great spiritual understanding. Do you, you ever say that to yourself? I can't work these principles because I don't have great spiritual understanding. You know, Bill Gates has never taken a Science of Mind course? Never. I checked. <laughs> With home office. What year did Bill Gates graduate from Science of Mind 100? Never took class. And there's several other people I could think of that haven't. Well, you have to have great spiritual understanding. And Ernest Holmes says, I haven't met them. And I stopped looking for them 35 years ago. There are no prophets other than the wise. You're the wise. I'm the wise. And see, if we don't have a higher opinion of ourselves, just like the guy that's a good social butterfly I, was, I shared at the first service. You know what? Many times, I don't think I'm, I'm making up a big enough story about who and what I am. Because I'm basing my current opinion all on the what's, what's in form right here. And I share that with you because you may be doing the same thing. Well, I'm such and such. This is my job. This is who I am. This is, you know, this, 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 this. What is the bigger idea that wants to be given birth? What's the idea for the Woodies with their ministry? And, and you're doing church, aren't you? For, for your church. What, and, you know, someone said to me, I was talking to a minister the other day, and I thought this was fascinating. And they said, uh, sorry, I think my ear is ch- changing shape. It's the humidity, and I can't keep this thing on. It's twisting. But anyway, and they said to me, you know, I, and they had just resigned from their church, and they said, uh, yeah, I, I had to leave because what I was saying, uh, I was speaking way over the heads of my congregants. I thought, man. I guess you did need to resign. <laughs> and my point with this is that, that this is a conversation that goes on, and I think you have to listen. In, a, in my prayer, and Dr. Carol Carnes gave me this years ago, years and years and years ago when I was first getting into ministry, she said, always pray that you speak to the heartfelt need of your community. Always pray. Your declaration is, I speak to the heartfelt need of this community. And, and, and that allows you to have the conversation with one another. You know, For me to come in here and pontificate over your head in my own thinking? What's that? I just thought that was in- it was just an interesting comment. I'd never heard that from a minister before. And I just thought it's very, very interesting. So here's what we're going to do. Dr. Ernest Holmes said what's important is to be alive while we're alive. And so I've got the guys. We're going to cue up some music. We're going to dance a little bit today. And I've asked the ladies to come on up. Guys, go ahead and hit this. Now, we're all going to stand up. I invite you to stand up. If you wouldn't mind, please. Are we? Okay, we got to rehearse this time. Here we go. Now, Dr. Holmes said what's important is to be alive while you're alive. All right. Now, do you feel more alive? Yeah. Thanks, guys. All right. Yeah. I was doing a bunch of work at home yesterday. I must have played that on my iPod 150 times. I said, i got to share that tomorrow. But it's true to be alive. What brings us to life? And it is that rhythm. And it's beautiful. I mean, that song is just a nonsensical song about partying on. But is is, is your life a party or not? Yeah. And wherever you are, and if you're struggling right now, if you're struggling right now, there's great compassion and there's great empathy here for that. But there's a way out of that. And, and speak to one of our practitioners. Speak to somebody that can just help, that you can borrow their consciousness. as you move forward. And take, this, this, take your energy and take your life vitality out into the world. Because that's what the world needs is awake people. And wise people. And people that understand how the world works. Because that is our teaching, how things work and where things start. So bless each and every one of you. And so it is.